So if you're anything like me, you see the name of this message and you think, we're going to watch Princess Bride. Um, <clears throat> some of you may be a little disappointed. We are not going to watch Princess Bride this morning, but I'm just setting the, the appetite for you. Tomorrow, tonight, or this afternoon, you can go home and watch Princess Bride, eat your lunch, and you'll love it because I'm putting this word in your head. What we're going to discuss this morning is a little inconceivable. We're going we're gonna to do things just a little different. I, I want to start off, and I want to ask you, if you can, to use your imaginations for the next few minutes. And I'm going to invite you to go on a journey with me, a journey back in time. So just imagine that me and you, we found a way to time travel, and I say, let's, let's go back in time. You can take five of your friends, and you get to pick you know, family, friends, whoever it might be, but the seven of us, me, you, and your friends, we're going to go back in time to the city of Rome in the, the year AD 82. And in the year 82... Uh, there is a man who's ruling Rome and the Roman Empire, and he's called Emperor Domitian. You may have heard of him before, Emperor Domitian, from your, your history lessons. He was the son of Vespasian. Vespasian was, uh, he started off as this general in Rome. He was one of the top generals, and Emperor Nero sent Vespasian down to the Middle East, and in particular to Jerusalem, to kind of stop this Jewish uprising, this Jewish revolt that was happening in, in the city. So Vespasian goes down, and he begins to put an end to it. Nero gets assassinated, and then Vespasian moves back to Rome to become emperor. When he leaves, he leaves his son Titus to kind of continue his good work, to continue to stomp out the Jewish rebellion, to put an end to this uprising, and that's what Titus does. He continues the work. He pounds through the two exterior walls of the city of Jerusalem. He makes his way in and eventually destroys the temple, and for two years, uh, Titus kind of does his dad's work, and then his dad dies, and Titus goes on to become emperor for a few years, and eventually Titus dies, and then Domitian takes over. Domitian is known, if you remember from your history books, he's known for his reign of terror, right? For just being this ruthless emperor in Rome. We kind of show up on the scene as these, these time travelers. And then even though Rome is this massive city with millions of people, <clears throat> it, word spreads quick that these people from the future are here. Domitian ends up hearing about it and he sends a servant to us and invites us to dinner. Now, immediately we're a little scared because we know the kind of guy Domitian is, but, but there's no real alternative. He's the ruler, so we join him for dinner. The, the, the guy, he leads us through the city, and as we're walking through the city, we actually walk t- towards this, this incredible structure that was built. And in this time, in AD 82, it, it was very recently constructed. It's called the Arch of Titus. If you've been to Rome, you've probably seen it before. It's a beautiful structure. Th- this Arch of Titus was built by Domitian for his brother Titus to kind of commemorate and to honor his work in, in stomping out this Jewish rebellion, this Jewish uprising, this, th- this, this thing that was happening in the Middle East that they were sent to overcome. He honored his brother with this incredible structure, but as we walk closer and closer towards the arch, and even underneath the arch, we get the images of this, uh, this Jewish society, this looting, this uprising, and the Roman government coming against them and eventually stomping them out. We make our way through the Arch of Titus into the city towards the great Colosseum. The Colosseum's gorgeous, but we know what happens in the Colosseum. We know the bloodshed. We know the people that were murdered, that were sacrificed. We make our way through the emperor's entrance, and we walk into to this, to this great room, to this beautiful area that's just been f- filled with people, hundreds of people. There's senators, and there's rich people, and there's, there's slaves. And here we are, the time travelers, and, and, and sitting in the midst of this, this crowd, there's a, a temporary throne. And sitting on the throne is Emperor Domitian, <clears throat> surrounded by his praetorian guard, all dressed in purple. It's a sight to behold. It's beautiful and it's scary. There's a lavish meal because they're celebrating the hundred days of games. The hundred days of games of of gladiatorial combat. They're they're, they're concluding this with this incredible feast. And we're the guests of honor. 
There's food we've never seen before, right? There's, there's exotic meats and exotic, exotic fruits. There's lots of eggs, and there's, there's enough wine to float a ship. As a matter of fact, you ask for water, but I, I remind you that you can't drink water in this society in this time because it will kill you, so you go thirsty. <clears throat> you have no idea what's happening because you don't speak Latin, but for the sake of this story, I do because I'm the host, and that's amazing. <clears throat> you may have taken Latin, and someone probably told you it was a dead language. You know, it comes in handy. So we're back in this time. You have no idea what's going on. You're trying to read body language. People are saying things, and you don't really understand. So all eyes are on me. Like, what are they saying? What are they doing? I'm a little concerned because I I know that the environment we're in with the people we're in and the man whose presence we're sitting in. We sit at our table, and and Domitian sends one of his servants over with a question. He makes his way over to our table, and he says, Emperor Domitian is is so happy you decided to join us today, but he has a question. He wants to know about his empire. He wants to know about this glorious Rome. He wants to know, what is the Roman Empire like in the 21st century? And and all of us sitting at the table, knowing the future, knowing what happens, immediately our our nerves begin to to kind of go on edge. We're a little worried about what the answer must be, but, but you turn and you look to me, because I'm the only one who knows how to communicate. So I stand up and, and, and I come forward realizing the words I'm about to say, I've got to be very careful because if I'm not too cautious, I could end up being part of the blood that was shed on the floor of the Colosseum. I start off as kindly as I can. Your Excellency, Emperor Domitian, Your Excellency, to understand the future of Rome, I must first rehearse a bit of recent history. Emperor Domitian, before we can really get into this, can I take you on a little bit of a journey? Can we, can we go just back in time a little bit so I can explain a little bit more <clears throat> about what this, this uh, incredible empire is like and what happens in the 21st century. We start off this way. On our way to the Colosseum, we pass through the Arch of Titus, that, that arch that you built to commemorate your brother and what his work did here and how he stomped out this Jewish rebellion, how, how he destroyed the city of Jerusalem and, and the temple to their God. But Emperor Domitian, in, in all of that chaos and all of that destruction, something amazing happened. The Jewish God remained unscathed. And for Domitian, you're not going to believe this, but, but in a few short years, the, the God that your empire kind of sought out to destroy would be the God that your empire begins to worship. It, that just in, in a few short years, that, 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 that your gods, the Roman gods, that your people would actually begin to believe that your Roman gods are actually no gods at all. Emperor Domitian can't believe what he's hearing. He begins to squirm in his seat a little bit. Crowd begins to get a little bit uncomfortable. I continue. In just a few short years, one of your emperors, he's going to actually make any animal sacrifice to, to, to any uh, foreign god that isn't a Jewish god, he's going to make it illegal. In a few short years, he's going to disband all the priesthood. He's going to destroy the temples that you erected to honor your gods. Emperor Domitian, this amazing empire you built is going to be nothing of what it looks like right now in the future. And as I say these words, although you can't understand, you know tensions are rising. You know it's getting a little uncomfortable. You know we're on dangerous ground. It gets quiet. It gets uncomfortable. <clears throat> the crowd begins to stir. There's some, some violent eruptor, uh, uh, eruptions in the crowd. Like, how could they? Who, who in the world? The Praetorian Guard, their right hands falls to the, to the hilt of their gladius, ready to strike at any moment, waiting for the emperor's signal. But Emperor Domitian doesn't give a signal. He leans forward in his chair and he simply says this, how, how, how can this be? How can it be that this amazing empire, this eternal city would fall so far away from what we set out to do? 
And I said, well, Emperor Domitian, to answer your question, we've got to go back a little bit further in history. Just 50 years from this time period. 50 years ago in, in, in your life, we need to take a step back. About 50 years ago, something incredible happened. About 50 years ago, a man came out from the wilderness, an unruly man, a kind of a, a, a wild-looking man, proclaiming that God was going to do something in this world for this world and that it would change the world forever. This man's name is John. Emperor Domitian, you may not believe me, but I can see in your crowd there are some historians from our time who are known as famous Jewish historians. Check with them and they'll tell you. This man, John, he came on the scene and he began to teach and speak in a way that people hadn't heard of before. And he began to talk about this coming Messiah and that one would come after him who would initiate a kingdom to do something that would change the world forever. And although he was an unruly man and a wild man, he drew incredible crowds. All of Judea, all of Jerusalem left to hear this man speak. After a short time period, Emperor Domitian, he began to get sideways with Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas demanded his death. But before he died, he said, one's coming. One's coming who's greater than I. And the Jewish leader said, John, are are you proclaiming to be the Messiah? And he said, no, it's not me. It's somebody who's going to come after me. And he's going to be greater than you could ever. He's going to do something this world has never seen before. And shortly before John was beheaded, Jesus of Nazareth steps on the scene. Jesus of Nazareth. A a, a man who, who comes on the scene as a teacher, as a rabbi, as a nobody. But his teachings change the world forever. Jesus speaks the way nobody has ever spoken before. His words are just so full of life and full of hope and, 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 and kind of strung together in a way that no man has ever put words together before. This humble rabbi becomes a teacher who initiates this thing that God's been setting out to do for all of time. Jesus said, my father's kingdom is coming and it's not a kingdom of this world, but it's a kingdom that will touch this world and change this world forever and life will never be the same. Jesus wasn't just an amazing teacher, Emperor Domitian. He was also a miracle worker. He did things that nobody had ever seen before. He upset the status quo. Eventually, he he kind of went sideways with the leaders of his day, the Jewish leaders, who demanded his death. And under your governor, Pontius Pilate, Jesus was arrested, he was tortured, and he was crucified. And Emperor Domitian, if you don't believe me, Senator Tacitus is sitting right here. Senator Tacitus, in my day and age, he's a historian. He knows all of this. He can verify my accounts. He can verify that there was a man named Jesus. He can verify that he was punished brutally and he was crucified under your governor, Pontius Pilate. See, what's amazing, Emperor Tacitus, is is that that what started, or Emperor Domitian, what started as what you thought was going to be the end of this Jewish uprising was really just the beginning. Because after Jesus was crucified, he was put in a, in a, a tomb. And like he said, while well, he was alive, in three days, the way the, the Jewish culture counts days, in just three days, his body's gone. Something, it, it was stolen. And it, it wasn't stolen because he had incredible wealth. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was a nobody. And beside that, when they broke into the tomb, n- none of the things that were buried with him were taken. It was only his body that was gone. And little by little, over the next few days, individuals came forward talking about how they had, they had seen Jesus and they had spoke with Jesus. And, and some of them were having lunch with Jesus and it went from individuals to, to tens of people to, to dozens of people. Eventually, hundreds of people proclaimed that they had seen Jesus and talked with Jesus and had lunch with Jesus. And, and this rabbi, this simple man, spoke words that sparked a fire that changed the world. 
In Jesus' words, they gave his followers this incredible courage. Their courage was contagious. And from what looked like the end, started this incredible movement. And just as Jesus said while he was alive, and then he said again after his resurrection, he said, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is here. It's silent. Again, you have no idea what's going on because I'm speaking in Latin. But the crowd is just left wondering, who is this man? Before they can ask another question, I said, Emperor Domitian, let, let, let me continue. This man, his work, what he said, it's so amazing that the symbol of his death the, the, the symbol of, of, of what we recognize as his death, of what was recognized before Jesus' death as your tool of punishment, on our way in here this morning, just a few hours ago, as you made your way into this great hall, through the emperor's entrance into the Colosseum, you don't see it now, but in our time, when we walk through the hall, this is what we see. An old wooden cross that once represented the power and the might and the ruthlessness of Rome, of your empire, but after the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it represents the power and the love and the plan of God for this world. And you don't see it now, but in a few years, this symbol, his symbol, will be plastered all over your kingdom. Your temples will be ripped down and new ones will be built in his honor. A Jewish rabbi died 50 years ago but even the people in your empire will worship him as their Lord. All around this city, you know what's happening. Rich men, poor men, slaves, freed men, men, women, children are gathering all around in their gardens, in, the, in, their, in their houses, in small rooms, under trees by rivers, worshiping a Jewish rabbi as king. And you'll, over the next few years, you'll use all of your might and all of your power and all of your influence to try to stomp out this amazing thing that he started. But it's not going to work. You'll exhaust yourself, but it won't happen. And the empire that persecuted this man will become the empire that worships him. Emperor Domitian, people will know about you in the future. But all they're going to know about you is your reign of terror. And, and every Roman emperor from this point, from all, all of history, they're going to make up about two paragraphs in our modern history books. No one's going to remember the things they did, except, except for one. There's one emperor who stands out with exception, and his name is Caesar Augustus. Every year, Caesar Augustus' name is going to be remembered. Every year, Caesar Augustus' name is going to be part of a celebration. But not because of his wild accomplishments. People are going to remember him because of his part in the narrative of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Caesar Augustus, Emperor Domitian, is simply a footnote in the story of the birth of the Jewish king, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the rabbi, the man who, who, who started a revolution with some words, becomes the most influential and revered man who ever lived. You can try with all your might to stop what's happening, but you'll never be able to. You see, Emperor Domitian, as much as you want to believe that Rome is eternal, it isn't. There's only one eternal God. 
And it was his temple that your brother destroyed. And it was his son that your governor crucified. But it was also his sovereign purpose that your empire would advance. And at this, I'd find my seat. And the crowd is just quiet. And it's awkward. It's like sitting on needles. No one knows what to do. But little by little, a smile begins to creep up on the emperor's face. The crowd begins to look a little confused. Why is he smiling? His smile turns into just outright laughter. Now he's laughing. The whole crowd erupts into laughter because they all take their cues from the empire. So everyone's laughing, but no one knows what they're laughing about. Finally, Emperor Domitian speaks up. He, he grabs his cup and he pulls up his cuff and he offers us a toast. He says, brilliant, brilliant. You almost had me. You had me believing right up until the end of your tale. He toasts us, then he calls for music, and the celebration continues. Through the course of dinner, Emperor Domitian makes his way over to our table, and he says, that was amazing. He said, but, but, but I, I must insist, I insist that you come back and you have dinner with me tomorrow night, because this time I want to know the truth. No more fairy tales. I must know what the future holds for our glorious empire, and for this, our eternal city. One man with one message changed the world forever. He initiated something over 2,000 years ago that is still being talked about and celebrated today. What's amazing is that the greatest empire in all of the known world couldn't stop it even though they tried. And it just foreshadows what Jesus said while he was alive. When Jesus was alive, he gathered all of his apostles. He said, he said, gentlemen, but really it was more than gentlemen because anytime he gathered with his apostles, there were crowds, right? Hundreds and thousands of people. Ladies and gentlemen, speaking to his apostles, I will build my ecclesia. And his ecclesia, we interpret that as church, but it's so much bigger than church. My people, my movement, my gathering, this, this thing that you can't really kind of put into words. It's kind of intangible. I'm going to build that. And the gates of hell, even death itself, will not overcome it. Jesus was going to initiate something that, that people would try for years, and men would come after Emperor Domitian and after the Roman Empire and try with all their might and all their power and all their influence and all their terror to put an end to this thing that Jesus started. And Jesus said, you don't get it. Even death won't stop it. It tried and it failed. And it's trying now and it's failing. And it might try again in the future, but it would fail again. You can't overcome this thing I'm doing because it is unstoppable. It changed the world 2,000 years ago. And my friends, it'll change the world today. You guys have probably heard of Jordan Peterson. Really famous lately for some of the, uh, what he stirs up politically. But in his book, The 12 Rules for Life, he has this incredible quote that I'm going to let him kind of speak it to you because I've tried to say this before and you've heard these words before, but, but maybe never put together so eloquently with such wisdom. I mean, he speaks at, at a level that's higher than the way I can speak. But he says something that I find so beautiful and so true. He says this in his book. He says, Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. Right? That's our word. It's impossible. It shouldn't be. This shouldn't happen. This is inconceivable that one man would, over, would overturn an, an empire in just a few years with a message. This is, this is, an, this is impossible. 
The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master and commoner and noblemen alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. That just, that doesn't happen. That's impossible. The implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. How and why? It is, in fact, nothing short of a miracle that the hierarchy slave-based societies of our ancestors reorganized themselves under the sway of an ethical religious revelation such that the ownership and abolition, or sorry, the ownership and absolute domination of another person came to be viewed as wrong. This didn't happen. And this next statement I, I think is so brilliant because for us in our culture, we kind of grow up and this is status quo. Well, of course you treat people this way. Of course people have value. Of course might doesn't make right. And, and the truth is in this culture, we would be completely wrong because we didn't live in this. We didn't live the way they lived. We didn't live with this understanding. He goes on, he says, we forget that the opposite was self-evident through most of human history. That in most of human history, might made right. In most of human history, he who had the most gold made the rules. That in most of human history, it wasn't, it wasn't seen as anything bad to put somebody weaker than you down, for women to have no place, for children to be treated like a commodity. In most of human history, it wasn't a foreshadow or a thought in anyone's head that there was anything wrong with a group of people dominating an entire culture and civilization. This is everyday stuff. We forget that the opposite was self-evident through most of human history. The society produced by Christianity, he goes on, was far less barbaric than the pagans, even the Roman ones that it replaced. It objected, and you've heard me say this before, but, but hear it from somebody else, somebody smarter than me. It objected to infanticide, to prostitution, and to the principle that might means right. It insisted that women were as valuable as men, which in ancient culture, nothing could have been further from the truth. It demanded that even a society's enemies be regarded as human. All of this was asking the impossible. But it happened. It happened. You see, it wasn't what believed that changed the world. It was what happened. It wasn't what people believed about this great man named Jesus that changed the world. It was what happened. And what happened is completely inconceivable. It's impossible. How does one man, how does a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, with a message topple an empire? It's, it's inconceivable. But you see, in our world today, some of you, you want to make America great again, and rightly so. Some of you are really scared of what it means to make America great again. What does that mean? What is again? What, what do you mean? And rightly so. But the only way to change a nation, the, the only way to, to turn a nation around from where it's heading, isn't through one man, it isn't through politics, it isn't through an empire. Jesus laid out the foundations. He told us how to be great. He told us how this would happen. And he said, I'm building it. And it won't be overcome. The only way to change a nation or to make America great again is through a thriving church. It's through a church that believes in the life and the words and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
We've tried with political figures. We tried the might makes right. We tried with the heavy hand. We tried with laws on laws on laws on laws. It doesn't change. The only way to do it is when a group of people, when this movement, when this thing that Jesus started, where he said nothing will come against it and be able to win, when that group of people begins to live and practice the way Jesus lived and practiced, and when a church begins to live that way, a nation can become great. Jesus told us how to do it. And it's not in the systems, it's not in the ways of this world. As a matter of fact, you've heard me tell you this story so many times, but I'll say it again in a quicker way. Jesus, he's on his way into Jerusalem, approaching his death, knowing in a few short days he'll be crucified. And he hears this commotion behind him, right? The apostles are talking. Hey, hey who's going to be the, the second greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to be the third? We know Jesus is number one. And Jesus, when you get in there and you take off your rabbinic robes and there's a, a big M on your chest for Messiah and on the back there's, there's a big K for king, you know, when you like overthrow the government and you become the ruler and you become the power, we know you're one. But who's two? Who's three, Jesus? Jesus says, guys, seriously, sit down. You're not getting this. You don't understand. You know the way that the systems and the power structures work in this world. Yes, that's why we're asking. And he would smile and say, but not in my kingdom. You see, I've been talking about this kingdom that God's establishing, the kingdom that God is bringing to the world, for the world. And in this kingdom, it's not that way. In this kingdom, the greatest among you serves. The greatest among you loves. The greatest among you sacrifices for the sake of others. And then he, he said this, he said, and if you follow me, follow me and, and me, the, the guy with the big M and the big K, the Messiah, all that you're waiting for, even the Son of Man, even me, I have not come to be served, but I have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Guys, this is how we change the world. And if you follow me together, we will change the world. And here's the good news. They did. They followed him. His followers would later be persecuted. Most of them would be put to death. But, but you couldn't like quench the fire. You couldn't remove the passion. You couldn't take the courage away. Their courage was built on Jesus and it, it spread through like wildfire and it changed the world forever. And Journey, it can do the same today. How? Jesus said, here's how. You, and he's talking to his first century audience, right? He's talking to a crowd of people, to these apostles and the people that are following. But I think he would say the same thing to you and to me. You are the salt of the earth. And they would laugh and say, no, we're not. We're nobody. We're Galileans. We're, we're, we're Judeans. No one knows us. No one, no one recognizes us. We have no power. We have no authority. We have no wealth. We have, we have no freedom except that which Rome, the Romans allow us. We're not even a sovereign state. We're not the salt of the earth. Jesus would smile and say, that's only because you don't know what's coming. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? If the salt gives in to the power structures of this, of this world, if the salt feel, ever feels that, that, that being number one means you have to do it and take advantage of those underneath you, if the salt ever decides that it's more important to take care of itself than to take care of those around them, and it loses its saltiness, how can it ever be made salty again? And then he says these incredibly strong words. It can't. 
it is good for nothing. It is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And in this culture, in this society, where these people have, have no ounce of freedom, their greatest hope is just kind of to, to eke out a survival under the heel of Rome. They hear these words and think, yeah, that sounds great, Jesus. But who are we? Again, he would say, you are the light of the world. And they'd say, no, we're not. Rome's the light of the world. Rome's the city on a hill. All power, all benefit, all instructions, it comes from Rome. Who are we, Jesus? He said, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Like our good deeds, we have no good deeds. No one's seeing us. No one recognizes us. And he said, it's only because you don't know what the future holds. Let them see how you love others more than you love yourself. Let them see how you value and you honor women. Let them see how you value and you honor children. Let them see how you no longer fear death. So when a plague comes through a town, you'll stay and you'll care for the sick. Let them see those good deeds and they will glorify your Father in heaven. They're thinking, Jesus, this is, this is impossible. This is inconceivable. He says, I know, but it'll change the world. And Jesus left. His great movement, his great people, his great church to do something that not even death itself could stop. And here's the, the interesting part. We're all a byproduct of that. We're a byproduct of a group of people who said, okay, Jesus, we'll do what you say. We're stewards of that message, of the message of hope and of life and of value and of worth and of forgiveness and of grace. We'll take your message to the ends of the world for the sake of those who come after us. But here's the convicting part. We're in the same position. What are you going to do with the message that's been given to you? You're a part of the movement that Jesus said will change the world and nothing would ever stop it. You're a part of, of, of a church that is established on those words that I will build my church and nothing will come against it. I will build my kingdom and even death won't be able to stop it. What do you do with that? Are, are we going to sit back and just take from it? Are we, are we just going to take whatever we can get from it and use it? for what we want, and then kind of let it go less than it was, more worn out than it's been? See, my fear is if that's our approach, we may get the benefits of it, but our kids won't, and our grandkids won't. And there may come a day where our grandkids never get to experience what we were able to experience. We're stewards of the message. What do we do with the thing that God left us? Do we take advantage of it and take what we can get from it, or do we engage it? And by engaging it, do we keep it moving? Do we keep it active? Do we keep it so that it becomes a thing for the next generation to hold and the next generation to do something with so that it continues to pass out through generation after generation? It's the message that changed the world. The good news is it can do it again. I think we have to decide, do we want to part in it or not? Jesus didn't say it's going to stop. He kind of left it to you. Are you going to join and be a part of it? Or are you just going to take from when you can and move on?
See, Journey, against all odds, the church changed the world once. The good news is, it can still do it today. Nothing can stop what Jesus put in motion. The question for us is, what do we do with it? Do we continue to consume and to use it for us? What's the faith of the next generation worth for you? What do you want your kids to experience and your grandkids? Will you take from it or will you engage with it and make it better than it's ever been? I think we are in this this incredible place of an opportunity to do something significant, not just in in the lives of the people here, but in our communities. And as communities get a hold of this, in in our nation, and as our nation, then our world. But the interesting thing is, it starts with you. What's your place in the story? What's your place in the message? What are you going to do with what God has given you? You see, this, is, this message matters because it's important that people get this. This is why, like the church, this is why we decided to do Journey three years ago, to do it on these words, that it was so important for the church to succeed, for people to hear the message, not just for me, but for my kids and for my kids' kids and for your kids' kids, so that the message would continue, the hope, the life, the grace, the, the, the times where we feel completely beaten down by life. Who's going to bring hope? Who's going to bring encouragement? And it's important for us to get this. It's important for you to get this. Because it's the only thing that can change the world. And let's be honest. There is a lot about our world that needs changing. And for those of you who call yourself Jesus followers, the Apostle Paul gives you your marching orders at the end. In 1 Corinthians, he says this. If you're just completely overwhelmed by the thought, how do I change the world? The Apostle Paul would say, stand firm. Stand firm and let nothing move you. That language, that's like battleground language. That's not like soft, like just stand firm. Paul's commanding, stand firm and let nothing move you. Dig in your heels. Get ready for a fight. The battle's coming your way and it might be hard, but let nothing move you. And always, always, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know, although at this time they didn't know, They didn't have the benefit of foresight. They couldn't see the story they were a part of, the story that was being written, how it would change history. They didn't see, but we do. He would say, but you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And it wasn't because they responded to the message. They became stewards of that message and we are here because of what they have done. Your labor is not in vain. Because when you decide to work for the greatest movement in history, it changes lives, and it changes cities, and it changes nations, and it changed history, and it will once again. The question for us is, what will we do with that? Will we look back like, this is a nice story, this is a good tale, that's history. But anyone with any amount of knowledge knows history repeats itself. What changed the world once will change the world again. Will you take from it or will you engage with it? And Journey, I I believe with all my heart, if we decide to engage with it, our communities will be better, our communities will change, our nations will change. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and nothing can overcome it.
Heavenly Father, I thank you. God, I thank you for this in, uh, incredible story, Lord, but I know it's, it's not a tale. It's, it, God, it's history to us, but it is, it's life, and it's a message that has changed the world. God, and it's the message that's changing the world right now, and it's the message that will change our nation again. I pray with all my heart, Lord, that as we wrestle through this, as we, as we try to figure out, God, what do we do? How do we engage? How, how do we make sure we're not just consuming and taking, that you would give us the wisdom to see that and the courage to take that step and engage and continue to be stewards of this incredible message of hope. I thank you for every person here, Lord. I pray you'd be with them this week and bring them back next. In Jesus' name.